The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. Today we'll hear two exclusive readings by authors, uh, reading extracts from their new novels. The first will be Call Me Marlowe by Catherine D. St. Fowl. And the second we've got today will be Michael Meehan reading from his novel An Ungrateful Instrument, and both are out via Transit Lounge. First up, we'll hear from Catherine, though, Catherine D. St. Fowl. Her novel is Call Me Marlowe, and here's a description. Set in both Prague and Melbourne, Call Me Marlowe captures a man's search for his heritage in the hope of understanding his estrangement from his mother. With a delicate touch, the novel embodies the, na- the nature of trauma, both personal and political, in people's lives. Harold Vanek is in love with Mary Lou, a woman he met in Korea, where she was working as a sex worker, but whom he has managed to bring to Melbourne. She is the one who calls Harold Marlowe. Theirs is an uncommonly beautiful but tenuous intimacy. Harold believes he has betrayed both Mary Lou and departs. Uh, sorry, Harold believes he has betrayed Mary Lou and departs to Prague in a blind search of all he has lost. What happens in the city of a hundred spires is both remarkable and affecting. The people he meets there: Vaclav, Mary, Pete, Peter, and the soul of the city itself provide answers and a world that he desperately wants Mary Lou to be part of. But is it all too late? And here's a little bit about the author, Catherine de St. Fowl. Catherine de St. Fowl was born in London, spent her first years in Sussex, England, and lived in Paris and the south of France. She moved to Melbourne in 2003 and now lives between Brunswick and a garden in Dalesford. She has had six books published in France, and this is her fourth book with Transit Lounge. English was her mother tongue, and when she became an Australian citizen, it all came together. She found that the language of her childhood made her heart beat in Australian English. And I actually have an earlier interview, if you if you search for The Quiet Carriage on Spotify, uh, where she, uh, Catherine Sinfar, was discussing her previous novel, The Sea and us. Without further ado, here is Catherine reading an extract from her novel, Call Me Marlowe. The aircraft is behaving like a bucking bronco, but I'm not bothered. I realise that the whisky must be pursuing its benevolent task. When the pilot lands without a bump, they all clap. I feel more like having a nap. In fact, I could have flown on forever. Eventually, I follow, I meekly follow the last passengers out of the plane. They are hermetically siphoned off to the terminal in a jet bridge, suffused with light, dwarfed by its pharaonic proportions, walking in pharaonic proportions, walking in Doha Airport feels like being inside a galactic bee's eye. I check the gates for the connecting flight to Praha and write the number down on the back of my old boarding card. 
Then I wade towards a cozy bar. It's extending its arms out to me. Something about it has a Korean feel. It's neat and purposeful, with lights twinkling in a shadowy grove. A friendly Asian barman with the improbable name of Carlo is soon keeping my levels of alcohol at exactly the right pitch for me to get on the next plane. He even asks me what I was drinking on the flight and advises me to stay on whiskey when I was about to stray to vodka. Carlo has just divorced and speaks gently and sadly of his ex-wife. He doesn't regret. Oh no, I just smile, he says. A smile for the past. Barmen are always incredibly, are always crazily wise. He stops topping me up when I seem to be having trouble reading my boarding car pass and I return to my amiable ambling, ambling around the place, straying under vaulted prisms and concrete buttresses, following the kind numbers leading me to the next plane. Travellers with their pillows around their necks, pulling cases like pet animals on wheels, are all organized, all going somewhere, because I'm fleeing and not choosing. I could be aiming for some haphazard place, like a doctor Doolittle with his eyes closed, holding his index finger aloft a swirling globe on its stand to choose his destinations. Sometimes Dr. Doolittle's finger drops in the middle of the sea and he must start again. Marushka used to read me Hugh Lofting's books when I was a kid. Like Chandler, Fitzgerald, Hemingway and A.A. Milne, he was part of the lost generation, those who'd been in the trenches or suffered World War I in some way. But, but Lofting was the only one of them who, inventing a story for his children, wrote from the trench itself. Marushka filled me in on this. She was so knowledgeable about their lives. The way they had deals, they had dealt with the war appeared to reassure her, even if it were only by drinking. Swinging on gossamer's threads, they hurled themselves through the jungles of their own minds. You can go through hell and still exist, Harold. I asked her, does exist mean to be alive? She stared at me with that Slavic absence that manages to be such a gift of presence. Yes, Harold, but only just. I had to be content with that. But now I understand what she meant about being only a hull, about leaving oneself in another place and hanging on to mere strands of being, alive, but only just. At the time, I didn't connect these comments to Marushka herself, when I'm in Praha, perhaps I will. Marushka would read to me for hours, her knees crossed at a funny angle, with her foot housed in a reasonable shoe that absolutely no one wore in the inner suburbs of Richmond, floating at an odd angle. The soft light of dusk or a lamp by a sofa would shed its glow on the scene of which I was a part. Why do I remember that shoe? that glow so well when the tone of her voice, her features sometimes vanish entirely. How can one darling miss people who are so blurry? She was scarred too, of course, and now I wonder to what degree. The fact she could only communicate with the child that I was and avoided all sustained conversation with other people, including her daughter, is slowly, do slowly dawning on me. 
Why do I only start understanding people when I've lost them? Am I going to do better at understanding Mary Lou now that I'm at the other end of the world when I can begin? Well, I can begin with Marushka. The tutelary god of drunks brings me to the right gate and departure lounge. On the plane, I notice my whiskey-providing friend again a few rows up from me, but I'm past caring and stare ahead, comatose. I must have slept through the last drag leg of the trip because suddenly I'm about to be spewed out into Prague. It feels like a non-event. I may have dreamt of the place in another life of longing, but now this Dr. Doolittle choice leaves me cold. I could just as well try imagining Marushka's past anywhere. When we land, we step out onto the tarmac instead of being hermetically siphoned off like in Doha. But once in the terminal, after the passport check, I'm stopped by two custom officers. One is tall and skinny, his eyes wide with trapped laughter, his tone sepulchral. His outfit, more a scarecrow's sartorial experiment than a uniform, hangs hangs desperately on its bony structure. His sidekick looks like a salesman from whom you wouldn't buy a second-hand fridge. His belt is buckled at the perfect notch. His uniform fits the breadth of his shoulders to a millimeter, and the crease of his trousers cuts through the air like the bow of a ship. I respond, respond punctiliously to their probing questions. Something about their tone, their high-handed officialdom, has me thinking of Marushka's fear of any form of public authority. Policemen, lawyers, teachers, doctors, even nurses, when I come to think of it, a fear that Mary Lou shares. I answer their questions in fluent Czech. My drunk Czech is more polished than my sober Czech. After all, it's my mother's and grandmother's tongue, but this fluency doesn't produce the desired effect, nor does my lack of luggage except a backpack. My situation mirrors Mary Lou's flight from Seoul. They obviously think I'm a dodgy character, rightly so. Both menacing and friendly, the two men are starting to feel familiar, nearly cozy. Then I feel a hand on my arm. It's my whiskey friend again. I can't fathom how she suddenly is part of this conversation. They don't refer to my inebriated state, perhaps believing that it's too obvious a point in their favour, but she does, as she launches into a discussion with them. He drank too much on the plane. He's afraid of heights. My champion's stature, her easy cultured voice, and her courtesy soon gathers momentum in my favour. I observe them, as if I were at a tennis match. The whole gist of their banter escapes me. I just wish I could sit down. Apparently, I'm her nephew, and I'm staying at her place. After a show of passports and a long conversation to which I listen from afar, they grudgingly let me into their country. Soon, she's frog-marching me out of the airport. The old fear of oppressing, oppressive government is in her stride. She may be younger than Marushka and perhaps even than Libyena, and perhaps even Libyena, because she was a young journalist before she left Czechoslovakia. I don't know why I'm instinctively keeping up with her instead of slouching towards the nearest bar. Soon I'm in a four-wheel drive being taken away. 
I've always hated people who had four-wheel drives in the city. I comment, I comment amiably. I realize I'm being rude, but I can't stop myself. I hear myself talk to her, a voiceover in my head. I haven't asked for your help or your friendship. I have friends of my own. Something in me hopes I haven't said this aloud. The city on either bank retreats as if it were planning its escape from my fumbling gaze. Bridges straddled of Latava in the sunset. Surely they can't be that beautiful. I wonder if they are spawned by my alcohol consumption. The window, the woman drives on with an amused smile. She has assessed the likes of me, not only my drunkenness, but also my very person, my type. Yes, she knows all about these fleeing walkabout Czech men. My name is Marie, and I'm inviting you to stay in my home until you sober up. I believe you're not a professional alcoholic. This makes me this makes me partly responsible for the state you have put yourself in. Marie sheds another of her amused glances onto me. What possessed you, my good boy, to get yourself in this state in a foreign country? You are listening to The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors on Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network, with myself as your host, Paul J. Laverty. And before the break, we heard Catherine de St. Fowl read from her novel, Call Me Marlowe, which is out now via Transit Lounge. And now we're going to hear an extract from another novel out now via Transit Lounge. It's Michael Meehan's An Ungrateful Instrument. And here's a description. In his remarkable new novel, award-winning Australian author Michael Meehan sensitively explores the links between generational conflict, family and the creative act. At its heart, An Ungrateful Instrument is a novel that portrays a son's struggle to be more than a mere instrument of the father's ambition. Antoine Fourquieret and later his son Jean-Baptiste were each brought up as child prodigies to the court of Louis the <laughs> Fourteenth. Together they were said to be the only musicians in France who could play the father's brilliant eccentric music for the viola da gamba. In an imaginative masterstroke, the story is told by Jean-Baptiste's highly attuned mute sister, Charlotte Elizabeth. Threaded throughout, Deep in a forest, an old man creates the gift of a special viol for the boy, Jean-Baptiste. This is a novel that can almost be heard like music, as it soars in language, theme and a wisdom that both embodies and transcends its period setting. And here's a bit about the novel. Michael Meehan's novels, The Salt of Broken Tears, Deception, Below the Sticks and Stormy Weather, have been shortlisted for and won many awards and have also been published internationally. He is Emeritus Professor at Deakin University and was for many years the chair of Adelaide Writers Week. He currently lives in Adelaide, South Australia. And here is Michael Meehan reading from his latest novel, An Ungrateful Instrument. It was when we crouched before the fire, the blaze the servants would build for us in our mother's rooms, or at the heart and centre of our chill house in Mont. Over and over my mother would tell us the same stories, 
They began in infant ways, but soon took on a violence and grew to adult tales of love, hatred and betrayal, and above all, to the prospect of revenge. She would sit close to the flames, her hair scattered and fraying in a silver aura about her face and moving lips, running out into the darkness like the extended feelers of some dangerous and poisoned insect just waiting to be touched and then to strike. We would huddle around the fire, watching the coals glow, break and fall. We would listen to the cold rooms crack and creak above us, to the wind slapping the loose shutters somewhere in the house above. There she would tell the story in the form I most remember, the tale of the birth of the earth, the story of Kronos and Rhea and the stones, with my brother and I wondering always why this story needed to be told so often in so many different forms. The names and places sometimes shifted, Kronos to Saturn, Zeus to Jupiter. The story, though, remained the same, the two of us listening intently for some new fragment to grace or to alleviate the tale. We would listen to our mother, sifting out her, sifting our own lives through the harsh mesh of her ancient stories as she cast backward for her curses to fling to the future. Her mother was oppressed always by the dark onset of time, where the break of day told only of the next deep night, where the first buds of May told only of the winter that must follow. Our births and baptisms, my brother's breaching, told only of the pull, the catafalque, and the time for extreme unction. The short life of our poor sister, dead long before her proper season, remained an emblem for our mother and the richest fable at her command, telling of the shadow in the wings, the true message of night and day, the dark truth of the seasons. She carried the last signs of great beauty on her face, the last hint, fading hint of softness in her eyes. For us it was the echo of a softness we'd hoped for when first placed in her arms. All the finesse of beauty and fine lines were now drowned in the great siege of anger that her life had become. Her clothing was always in tatters, with new patches replacing now and then the old. The bleak colour of continued mourning was no longer the sharp retraction offered by a shining black, but now only a stained and sombre grey, as though her dress itself were grieving for the colour it had been. The meanings of her stories were a mystery to us, but it was no greater than the mystery of why we were sometimes run out into the night, a few coats and other garments grabbed, with scolded and reluctant servants drowsy and half-sleeping. So little did we understand why we would be flung into the carriage and taken far into the country in the coldest dead of night, an all-night rocking ride through darkness to the old house by the river, to be met by servants woken and yawning and cursing in complaint, to be taken by lantern light along unfamiliar and ill-smelling corridors, through dark passages and up creaking stairs and into long-closed and unwelcome rooms, the dust and cats and cobwebs shaken from the covers and grudging fires lit. My brother and I scarce understood this old trove of resentment, this deep ferment of misery by which our lives were driven. We knew, though, that in these tales was lodged some sort of answer, some image for our mother of the way the world would work and had always worked before. 
She seemed to find some dank assurance in the idea that the worst had been known and told. She seemed to find some comfort in the idea that below a surface of disorder and bad chance and random cruelty there lay a deeper pattern, a glimmer of richer and yet more painful destinies. We crouched beside the fire dogs, below the huge copper kettle echoing the gleam, the heavy iron taking in the heat and glowing by dulled reflection. She would take the hourglass on the mantelpiece above and turn it over. Then she would begin, with her eyes always to the falling sand, to the shadow of the hourglass flung up against the wall. And so we lived in our mother's world of filthy clothing and unlit and abandoned rooms and bolted doors and cobwebs and candles snuffed and lanterns doused, with only the fires left to warm us, whether in cold rooms in Paris or in Mont, to strike her features in floating streams of black and red as she rehearsed her tales of doom, of how the daughter, even in her chosen darkness, must understand and prepare further to suffer, and how the son would know in time the pain that ran through the pith and fibre of the world. Our parents' marriage, this union fermented in hell or some worse place and richly seasoned in long dispute thereafter, pressed us, pressed us, Jean-Baptiste and me, to a bond that tightened with each year that passed. We waited in the curtained darkness when these unholy battles raged. We listened with meagre understanding to what was said, or rather shouted. We heard the anger, the long litanies of hatred, and the blows and breakages to follow. The two of us and our small sister Elizabeth in her short life took the whole shape of the world from the squalls and the corridors and rooms about us. We would retreat to our place by the window and each into each other's arms while the anger and buffets rocked the house. We listened to the breaking of glass or plate, the tearing of pictures from their frames, the cursing and stamping on ancestral faces. The crying and the shouting resonated against the oaken panels, with the whole house taking on the deep reverberations of some vast instrument of mourning, the echoes a requiem to the lives of those beyond. Our parents were married on a dark day in the year 1697, Antoine Fouqueret and Henriette Angelique Houssou. It was a marriage blessed by common interests between two talented musicians, two families made for music, two families eager for so advantageous a match. Our mother, Henriette Angelique, was descended from distinguished organists, her father the organist of Saint-Jean-en-Creve, her grandfather of the Saint-Anasson. It being seen as fit for her to marry the prodigious Fauqueray, his own more modest birth and humble origins now balanced by his great fame and most remarkable connections. The unlucky marriage of our parents was soon written up for better and for worse, and in eternitatum for anyone who might choose to follow its sad history, in judicial depositions and formal complaints, in rewritten wills and new covenants, and enforced prescriptions and appeals for public intervention.
you are listening to The Quiet Garage. And there we heard Michael Meehan read from his novel An Ungrateful Instrument, which is out now via Transit Lounge. And before that, we heard uh, Catherine de saint Fal uh, read from her novel Call Me Marlowe, which is also out via Transit Lounge, and both those novels are available now. I'd like to give a big thank you to both authors for providing that exclusive content for us. And that is all we have time for today on the show. We're on at the same time, in the same place, next week. And you can hear all old episodes on Spotify, and you can also follow me on all the socials under Paul J. Laverty. Until next time, Keep reading.